Um, I'll encourage you to grab a Bible if you brought one, and you can turn to John chapter 21. Um, before we dive in, just one quick thing I wanted to mention. Um, October is Pastor Appreciation Month. Now, I'm not mentioning it to be like... Uh, I wanted to say thank you. We, we received... We'll, well, we receive encouragement all year long, but many of you have given us notes of encouragement and small little gifts, and, and lots of them are just unnamed, and so I wanted to just take a moment and thank you as one of your pastors. Um, we feel very, very blessed and encouraged, and Don and Corlin, I know, <laughs> you don't get to jimmy in on my thank you. <laughs> But for, uh, for real, though, we do feel very blessed and encouraged, and I just wanted to thank you because I won't be able to thank you all personally. So um, with that being said, uh, the, we are in our last week in the Gospel of John. Um, we are spent, or we have spent, rather, 51 weeks, uh, so almost a full year of sermons uh, unpacking this just incredible uh, book of the Bible. And so we are going to look at all of chapter 1 uh, this morning. And chapter one really is, it's kind of like the epilogue to the story. Um, I don't know if you go to movie theaters anymore. We don't. One, I can't mortgage my house to go see a movie. Um, And there's nothing really that good that I want to see. But uh, uh, lots of times when we've gone to movies, uh, many of you stay through the credits because what are you waiting for? The after credit scene, what if there's, like, especially with uh, the Marvel movies, it's like, what if there's a, a scene after the credits? And um, even when we watch things at home, our kids often say, fast forward to the end and see if there's something funny at the end, right? This after credit scene. Um, this is kind of what chapter 21 is. Um, it's not an afterthought, but it's an epilogue um, to the, the Gospel of John. If you remember, John began his Gospel with a prologue. The first 18 verses are this great theological prologue before John gets into the, the meat of the narrative of the story. And so it's very similar. Like last week, um, the end of chapter 20 would have been an amazing close to the book, right? Jesus did all of these things so that you would believe that he is the Christ and that you would have life in his name. That sounds like a great conclusion. But the reason that John includes an epilogue is that there's a, there's a few questions that are left unanswered. Really, the biggest one we should all have in our minds is, what happened to Peter? Right? The last time we saw Peter, he's denying Jesus Right? I don't know him. I'm not his disciple. And then if you get to the next book, Acts, we have Peter who's kind of leading the church. And so if we just left it at that, we would go, what happened to Peter? Did he, did he get restored? Did he, get, uh, did he repent? Did he turn back to Jesus? And so that is really the big question that is answered in John chapter 21. So two things I want to focus on this morning. Um, Two questions, really. Is it possible to recover spiritually from a massive failure? Or is it kind of like, man, if you face plant hard, you're out for good? Or is it possible for you and I to recover from a massive failure? And then secondly is how do each of us individually focus on the race that God has given us without getting distracted by all these other things? So what I want to do is I'm going to read chapter 1 in its entirety And then we'll just kind of go through and I'll make some uh, comments as we go. So John 21, starting in verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, 
Thomas, called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from the land but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with the fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there were also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. The reading of God's word. So just a couple of initial thoughts on verses uh, 1 to 14, which is this incredible miracle of this uh, catch of fish. So we're told that the disciples are back in Galilee. The Sea of Tiberias is another name for the Sea of Galilee. So they've left Jerusalem. They've gone back to Galilee. And seven of them decide to go fishing. Because really, I mean, we can't blame them. What else would you do? Right? You've, you've encountered Jesus alive, but uh, uh, what else? I mean, they got to eat, right? 
And so some scholars have said, well, this is the, the disciples living in direct rebellion against Jesus. I don't think so. I think they just said, well, we're not 100% sure exactly what's the game plan. What are we to do? And if you remember in the book of Acts, the last time that Jesus comes, he says, you're going to be my witnesses in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, and it's like, look out, the church explodes. But for now, um, they go and they fish. And they fish all night, we're told, and they haven't caught anything. And Jesus then in the morning stands on the shore, and I love that they don't recognize him. And again, some scholars are like, well, it's because it's dark and he's far away. And I don't think so. I think we've seen lots of times Jesus has the ability with his resurrected body to disguise himself, to, to alter his appearance, whatever it is, right? They don't recognize him. And so he calls out from the shore, children, do you have any fish? And, and in the Greek, it's actually a question in the negative. It's meant to be a negative response. Literally, he's saying, lads, haven't you caught anything? And so then we hear this amazing miracle. They cast their nets on the right side, and the, there's so many fish that they can't haul the nets in, it's, and the nets aren't breaking. And so John like, kind of clues in, and he goes, it's the Lord. And so Peter, very Peter-like, um, he's naked. That's literally, when it says he's stripped for work, he's naked. And rather than go swim and stand in front of Jesus naked, he puts some clothes on. And then what does he do? He hurls himself into the sea and he swims to the, to the shore. Very like Peter, is it not? And then the other guys, you know, bring the boat in. Thanks for the help, Peter, with the fish. And they bring all the fish in. And, and, and what's the scene? Jesus has a, a charcoal fire going. Very important. We'll come back to that. Jesus has a charcoal fire and he's made breakfast for his disciples, but he asks, you know, go grab some of the fish you just caught. We'll cook that as well. And so Peter hauls it to shore, and we're told that there's 153 large fish in there. Um, there has been so much written about why does John tell us there's 153 fish? Um, massive speculation over the years. Um, even, like, not just recently, like, Augustine talked about this, like, in the 4th, 5th century. Why, why did he include the number of fish? Um, there's, there's many, many ideas of, of why. Some have said, well, maybe 153 was the number of known languages at that time. And we don't know for sure, but maybe. And maybe what John is saying, look, the, the net is going to go out and catch people from all of these languages. Some have said 153 is the number of tribes in the world as this gospel net is being cast out. Um, some uh, early church fathers said 153 is the number of kinds of fish in the known world, which if you actually look at that time, it was 157. So you're like, well, you're off by four. It's close. Um, some have said 153, this one is kind of bizarre, if you add all the numbers up from 1 through 17, like 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 plus 5, all the way to 17, it equals 153, and 10 is a number of perfection, and 7 is a number of perfection, and 10 plus 7 is 17. <gasps> um, did you know that two years ago, Canada turned 153 years old? And there was a pastor in Alberta that I listened to that said, God told me this number, 153, is meant for Canada. And this year in Canada, the gospel net's going to go out and we're going to see a catch like we've never seen before. So this week for you, I did the hard work. I cracked the code for you. Um, 
do you know why John tells us there were 153 fish? Because that's how many fish there were. Um, now, I'm not saying that there aren't numbers biblically that are, are symbolic. There absolutely are. Um, when, especially when you read the book of Revelation, but that's apocalyptic literature. So let me give you an example. In the book of Revelation, it describes Jesus as a lamb that was slain, and he has seven eyes and seven horns. Well, if we take those, those numbers literally, well, then Jesus is this grotesque, he doesn't, have, he doesn't literally have seven eyes and seven horns. Horns represent strength, and seven is a number of perfection. So what John is saying is Jesus has seven horns, meaning he is perfectly holy, strong, and mighty. And Jesus has seven eyes representing wisdom. He has all perfect knowledge and wisdom. So some numbers biblically, yeah, they carry symbols. But in a narrative setting, John just tells us how many fish they caught. And wouldn't you count the fish as well like if you saw like think about the disciples we, we this is Jesus standing on the shore we've just caught this amazing catch of fish and Jesus says go grab some of them for breakfast I would say to the disciples how many do you think we got well let's count them one two three there's 153 fish here and John's there and he goes 153 that's what I remember so all it does is just point to the the, the truthfulness of this narrative John was there he may be counted too. So the disciples then are eating breakfast with Jesus. And I love that it says that they, they know that it's Jesus. But no one dares ask, who are you? It's like this, this still this sense of shock and awe in the presence of Jesus. Because I want you to remind, I want to, I want to remind you like, Nothing quite like this has ever happened before. Sure, Lazarus was raised from the dead, but not in the way. Jesus was raised from the dead, and, and he's like this, this new person, right? This, no one's ever seen anything like this before. And so they're standing around, and I'm sure that they're all going, man, I don't even know what to say. Do we ask, is it you, Jesus? No, we know that it's Jesus. And so maybe they're just eating their breakfast in silence, and then in verse 15, it's like the whole scene shifts and we kind of zero in on this conversation that takes place between Jesus and, and Peter. Now, I'm sure the other disciples are still there. But Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me? And here's why the whole scene is significant. They're sitting around a charcoal fire and, and Peter is specifically asked three times, now, when was the last time Jesus, or, or rather Peter, was around a charcoal fire? We're, we're told it was the night that he betrayed Jesus. He went and stood by a charcoal fire, and he was warming his hands. And what happened there? Three times he was asked, are you a follower of Jesus? No. Didn't I see you in the garden? Aren't you one of Jesus' followers? No. Aren't you a follower of Jesus? No. And so what is, what is happening here? Jesus specifically brings Peter right back to that memory. The smell the sound of the fire, the visuals, being asked specifically three times. I think this is why in verse 17, Peter, after he's asked the third time, we're told that he's grieved. He, he, probably, he probably remembered exactly. It's not, it didn't happen that long ago. And when Jesus asked him the third time, it's like he goes, oh, man, this is exactly, when I this is exactly the same scenario as when I denied Jesus. Now, much has, much has been written about the type of words that are used in Greek here. Sometimes Jesus uses one word, um, agape, for love, and then he uses phileo another time. 
And there's been much speculation about why does Jesus use this word for love and this word for the other one? And even why does Jesus use certain words for sheep and then lambs and, and uh, the flock? Like, is there significance to this? Um, and there might be, but I'm not convinced. And here's why. Because John in his gospel, throughout the gospel of John, he's used different words for love interchangeably. So even in uh, chapter 3, verse 35, it's, Jesus talks about the father loving the son, and that's the word agape. But then in chapter 5, verse 20, he talks about the father loving the son, and that's the word phileo. So it doesn't seem like John places a lot of emphasis on the different words for love. It's like he just kind of picks and, and chooses. Um, when when uh, in chapter 13... Verse 23, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the word is agape, but then in chapter 20, verse 2, the disciple whom Jesus loved, it's the word phileo. Um, for in the account of Lazarus, Lazarus in chapter 11, in verse 5, and in verse 36, when it talks about Jesus' love for Lazarus, both words are used. So I don't, I'm not convinced that there's significance that Okay, Jesus asks love, but it's this type of love, and then the next type of love, and Peter responds with a different type of, I'm, I'm not convinced of that. I think the significance here is that Peter has denied Jesus three times, and now Jesus asks him three times if he loves him. So I think what Jesus is doing is he's confronting Peter's own high opinion of himself, and he makes him face his frailty head on. If you remembered, Peter was the one who said, Jesus, even if all these guys deny you, I will never deny you. I mean, Peter had a very high view of himself, and then he face-planted big time. And so now I think Jesus is exposing this in Peter. He confronts his own high opinion of himself, and I love that Jesus doesn't let him off with an easy response. He doesn't say, Peter, do you love me? And Peter goes, yep, okay, moving on. Like, no, Jesus continues to probe. Why? So that he gets to the wounded heart. One author I read said, off-the-cuff replies and well-meaning superficial responses won't work in the life of discipleship. I think this is why Peter is grieved, we're told. It's like Jesus is he's getting into the heart of the matter. I mean, we do this too, don't we? When someone, at least I do this, when someone asks like, how's it going? And we just go, good. And then usually what? We just leave it at that. Okay. How many of us are like, no, but how are you really doing? Good. No, but seriously, Andrew, how are you doing? And then it's like, right? I think that's exactly what Jesus is doing. Peter's like, yeah, I love you, Jesus. Okay, but Peter, do you love me? Yes, Jesus, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Grief. I think he's getting to the heart of the matter, and, and the word grieved, it goes beyond just he was sad. It's actually like pain or that you're distressed. I think what Peter is experiencing is a major undoing of himself, it actually reminds me, if you remember in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah sees this throne room vision and he sees the holiness of God and the seraphim and he's in the, this temple room and the train of God's robe fills it like this huge holy moment. What is Isaiah's response? He doesn't just go, wow, this is amazing. I love you, God. He says, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of an unclean people. Isaiah, in the presence of God, just became undone. And I think it was the third time Jesus asked, that's what did it for Peter. 
But here's what's amazing. Jesus, this is, this is this moment of restoration because three times Jesus told Peter, feed my sheep. I'm going to use you, Peter, in the church. Even though you're a mess and you're broken and you denied me, you're going to feed my, my lambs, Peter. And then he, not only that, but then he tells Peter, Peter, your death is going to be the death of a martyr, Right, that's what he's talking about when he says, like, when you were young, you dress yourself, go wherever you want, but when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands. It's a symbol of crucifixion. You'll be led where you don't want to go. And so what he's telling, and, and John tells us, he said this to, to say what kind of death Peter was going to die. So Peter, not only am I restoring you, and you're going to feed the church, and you're going to be this leader, Peter, not only that, you're actually going to die a death that glorifies God, you're going to die in service to God, crucified. And then he says, follow me. So notice what Jesus doesn't do. Jesus doesn't heap shame on Peter. I mean, he, it's like he brings Peter right back to the moment, right? Charcoal fire three times. But he, but he doesn't go, Peter, you idiot. What were you thinking? How dare you deny me, Peter. He actually gently and firmly gets to the root issue, but then he restores him. So do you remember our question at the beginning? Is it possible to recover spiritually after a massive failure? And I think Peter's example would tell us, yes, it is absolutely possible to be restored spiritually after you sin grievously. But it depends on how we respond to our sin, now, there's a, there's a couple of different ways that, we've, that we often respond to sin. And um, through my years of following Jesus, I've responded in all of these ways, and, I, and I've seen people respond. One of the ways that we respond to sin is we immediately just kind of blame others or we make up excuses for why we sinned. And really, it's just kind of a defense mechanism. We're just deflecting, right? It's just kind of like you, you sin, and then you go, well, if so-and-so didn't do that, then I wouldn't have to do this. And so that, it's their fault that I sinned. Or you just kind of make excuses for it. Well, it's not that big of a deal, okay? It's a, maybe it's one of the smaller. It was just a white lie. It's not a huge issue. And, and so for many of us, we just kind of deflect or blame others for our, our sin, more often, though, when you and I sin, um, what usually happens, whatever it might be, you sin, whether big or small, and then oftentimes there's an immediate sense of guilt and shame over our sin, and then we experience anger at ourselves, disappointment, frustration of, why did I, why did I do that? And then what usually happens is that we run from God. And we isolate ourselves, and then inevitably, we just sin more. I mean, Adam and Eve responded in both ways, didn't they? I mean, they sin, and what do they immediately do? Run and hide from God, and then they blame each other. <laughs> it was this woman that you gave me, and the woman says, well, it's the snake. It's his fault. That's the reason that I sinned. And they're hiding from God. So many of us respond this way where it's like the guilt and the shame of the sin is so strong that we go and we run and hide from God and we experience anger, disappointment, frustration, blaming others. Now, guilt and shame are actually two different things. Guilt is connected to what you do, right? Here's the law, here's the command, here's the rule, whatever it is. You broke it, you are guilty of breaking it, right? So Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, don't look lustfully at a woman, 
Well, I looked lustfully at a woman. I broke that command. I broke the the command that Jesus gave. I'm guilty of breaking it. So guilt is connected to what you do, the action that you do, but shame is connected to who you are. So you break the rule, the command, whatever it is, and you're guilty of it, but shame then is, I am useless. what, What is wrong with me? Why would God ever love someone like me? Why did I do that? And so shame is connected to to who you are. So this is just speculation. So take it with a grain of salt. Peter, I think Peter's guilt would be him denying Jesus. I mean, he sinned. He called down curses on himself. He turned his back on the Son of God. I do not know God. He lied about it. He was guilty. But I I think for Peter, what would the shame be? The shame would be, I blew it. Why would Jesus have picked me as a disciple? I mean, Jesus said he was going to build his church on me, and now there's no chance of that. I'm useless. I'm unworthy. I mean, maybe that's one of the reasons he went fishing. I don't know. So what does Jesus do? Jesus gets to the root of his guilt He asks him three times, do you love me? And then I think Jesus gets to the root of his shame by telling Peter, I still have a plan for you. You're going to feed my sheep. I'm I'm still going to use you, Peter. Peter, you're actually going to die in service to me. But I think Peter, to be brought to that place of restoration, he had to have this sense of grief over his sin. Right, 2 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about this. He says this, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you But also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in this matter. So Paul says there's a type of grief that leads to repentance, turning to God, changing your mind, being restored. And there's a type of grief that just leads to death. So Judas, worldly grief. Man, I can't believe I sold Jesus out. I'm going to go return the coins I can't believe I did that. But what does it lead to? Death. He literally killed himself. Peter, I think, is godly grief. He is grieved as Jesus interrogates him and digs into the heart issue. It says that he experienced grief, but what did it lead to? It led to repentance and salvation. It produces in you, Paul says, fear of God and a longing, and it produces zeal and an eagerness to clear yourself, a willingness to accept whatever the punishment or the consequences is. That's godly grief when you're face-to-face with your sin and you feel grief over it. Not because you got caught, not because, oh man, now there's consequences, but grief because, man, I've sinned against the holy God. We got time. Um, Here's an example of it, 2 Samuel. I mean, think about David, and David was a man who sinned grievously. He committed adultery with Bathsheba, another man's wife. He then conspired and plotted murder to get Bathsheba's husband killed in battle. 
And, he, and it's like, right, he, he sinned, he's confronted with sin. It's like, okay, I gotta clean this up. And then he devises ways to kind of cover up his sin. And I'm not gonna read all of it, but if you know the story, Nathan the prophet comes and he tells this great story to, to um, David about a guy that took someone else's lamb and blah, blah, blah. And, and David says, oh, he's so angry about this story. How dare someone do that? And then what does Nathan say? You, you're the guy, David. That's you, You've sinned, and, and then he confronts David, and what is David's response in 2 Samuel 12, 13? David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. I remember reading that as a kid and saying, no, you haven't. You sinned against Bathsheba and her husband. But what, what is David's response here? Man, above and beyond that, I have sinned against a holy, righteous God. And the consequence of David's sin is that his, his child dies. And if you read the whole story, David goes and he fasts and, and, and he prays and he lays on the ground all night and then the child is still taken from him as a punishment for what he's done. And what does he do? More sin and, and just anger at God? No, he cleans himself up and he goes to the house of the Lord and he worships. That is an example of godly grief. Going, God, you're right. I've sinned against you. I, I will take any punishment that you, you give me. Any consequence, Lord, of what I've done, I will, I will just accept it and I will go and I will worship you because above all, I want to be made right with you, God. So when you and I sin, and I know that you, we all have stories like this, there should be this grief connected to that, not worldly grief where you go, ah, man, I can't believe I got busted. Uh, I'm upset of the consequences because of, you know, my marriage is affected and my job and my, whatever it is. Not primarily grief because of all of those things, but when, we're, when we sin, it should be this godly grief where we go, I, I have sinned against my God. My, my sin is, is disrupting my relationship with Jesus. But we don't stay there, right? And Paul says godly grief is meant to actually push us to, re to repentance. And so, brothers, sisters, I need to tell you this. When you sin, you don't have to run from God. Because of Jesus, when we sin, we run directly to God. I mean, 1 John 1 says this, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But this goes so counterintuitive to our default mode, which is, I sinned, I'm dirty, I'm unclean, I can't come before God. I just kind of, I got to run away for a little bit. I mean, I've shared this before, but I lived for years in that mindset of like, I would sin and then I would go, oh, I can't believe I did that. And rather than immediately going to God and saying, oh, Father, please forgive me. I would spend days not praying, not reading my Bible, because I just felt so full of guilt and shame that I'm like, well, I can't do that. I'm too dirty to come to God. And then if I had a few days of clean living, then I'm like, okay, it's been three days. I would kind of tiptoe and approach God and be like, oh, sorry, God, about what happened three days earlier. And, and I had this warped idea that now Andrew can come into the presence of God because he suffered for a few days in guilt and shame. 
And it's not true. Because of Jesus, because of the gospel, when we sin, we run to God the Father and we go, Jesus, I, I blew it. Please forgive me. Right? And we experience grief over our sin and we repent and we turn to Jesus. And 1 John says, if you confess your sins, God is faithful and he'll forgive you and cleanse you. So you don't have to run from God. I mean, can you recover from a massive face plant spiritually? Yes. Look at Peter. And we, we could go on all sorts of rabbit trails, but we won't because, you know, people have said in the early church, well, aren't we just you know, abusing God's grace that we can say, okay, God's grace, now I can go sin all the more. And Paul says, no, of course not, we don't do that. But those who understand the gospel and what Jesus went through, we're not going to run and hide from him when we sin. We approach him and grieved over our sin, we say, oh, Jesus, would you please forgive me, cleanse me. You can be restored even after a massive sinful face plant. Everyone okay? The passage doesn't end there, right? We want, to, we want to finish up. So then Jesus and Peter are clearly walking. I think when he says to Peter, follow me, it, it is this symbolic gesture of a life of discipleship. But I also think that they just got up from the fire and now they're walking. And, Peter, and Jesus says to Peter, follow me. Because then... Uh, Peter turns and he sees John following them. Remember, Jesus has just said to Peter, you're going to be led away, your arms are going to be stretched out, this is the type of death that you're going to die. And and Peter turns and sees John following them and he says, Lord, what about this man? Isn't that so good? Is that not what all of us do? God may call us to something, some kind of trial or suffering or pain or, or whatever it is. He calls us to something, and what usually happens is we go, well, what about them? Why do I have to go through this? Why not them? Or on the, on the, on the flip side, when someone experiences the blessing of God or uh, the evidences of God's grace are just rich in their life, rather than blessing God for the blessing that we see, we go, why don't I get that? That's not fair. I love, Peter is no different, right? Peter has just been told the, the manner by which he's going to die, and who knows how much he understood of that, but he clearly, he realizes, okay, Jesus just told me I'm going to die a martyr's death, and the first thing they, he goes is, well, what about John? And Jesus' response is so good. He says, if it's my will that John remains until I come back, what is that to you? You, Peter, follow me. I, I love that then, right, John clears up some confusion because this legend began that oh, John's going to stay alive until Jesus returns. And John says, that's, let me clarify, that's not what Jesus said. <laughs> he said, if that's my will, what is it to you? He never said this, this was actually going to happen. But I love that Jesus says to Peter, what, don't be concerned about what I'm calling John to. Peter, follow me. You follow me. Don't worry about the race that John is going to run or how John is going to die or what I'm calling John to. Peter, follow me. I mean, I think we need to hear this 
today as well because you and I, we compare one another or we compare each other all the time. All the time. Like I already mentioned that, right? When, when I go through a trial or a pain or a suffering, I go, why, isn't, why do I get that? Look at so-and-so. Or when so-and-so is being blessed and their business is growing and they're, they're having babies and their house is great or whatever, I go, why not me? Jesus calls each one of us, be faithful in the race that I have for you. Listen, my, my race, my walk with Jesus is not your race. Maybe God will call me to things that he doesn't call you to. And that's fine. Right, so I've been in pastoral ministry for uh, 15 years now. And it's uh, the idea of comparing and, and going, well, why, not, why do you, why not me? It's, it's true for all Christians, but I think it's, it's really true for those in ministry. We... We, we compare pastor to pastor and ministry to ministry and church to church all the time, all the time. And it can be so easy to get sucked in. And oftentimes when I go to pastor's conferences or I go to blah, 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 and uh, uh, we sit around and usually one of the first things is like, so how, how, many are, how many are you running on a Sunday? How many people do you have and blah, blah, blah. And it's just kind of like, why do we do stuff like that? And uh, because we kind of want to compare, don't we? Well, we have 500 people on a Sunday. Oh, man, I only have 400. Ugh. Why, God? Why them and not me? And there's been several times when I was a youth pastor, um, uh, we would have ministry going on, but then you hear of the youth ministry down the street that has five times as many kids, and that guy gets paid way more than I do for being a youth pastor. Why, God? Why, why him and not me? Right? And, and over the years, God graciously has not audibly, but he's just impressed that on my heart. What is that to you, Andrew? You follow me. If I want you to lead a Bible study of 20 kids... While the youth pastor down the street preaches to a thousand, what is it to you? You follow me. Be faithful in your own race. Like some of us, you, you might be called to go to India and give your life as a missionary and share the gospel and be used that way. Praise God. Some of you might be called to just lovingly serve your family and raise your kids to love and serve Jesus. Praise God. Both things matter. And so I, I just want to say to you, stop comparing your calling to someone else's. You follow Jesus. Even if you read in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11, this great hall of faith is what they call it, right? And they list all of these men and women of the faith over the years that just did incredible things. And it's meant to inspire us. But in Hebrews 11.33, it, it speaks of a few uh, unnamed people. It says, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. And it's like, yes, please, sign me up. I want to have that where I conquer kingdoms and people, like mouths of lions are stopped. And, and we have a testimony from church history where, man, stuff like this happened. But it doesn't end there in verse 36. Others suffered mocking and flogging. And even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. 
They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. I mean, I want the first part, don't you? Stopping, stopping lions and building kingdoms. And you know what? For some of you in this room, maybe that's what God's called you to. And praise God. And, and, and the message would be the same. In the midst of that, follow Christ. And some of you, you might suffer immensely on your walk with Jesus. You might experience things like, like the second half of Hebrews 11. And I would say, praise God if that's what God's called you to. And the message is the same. In the midst of that, you follow Christ. Um, one specific group of people I want to encourage, and I don't what, take it with whatever it is, but all, through this week, I think sometimes in Christianity we have this idea of like, unless you are selling everything, moving to India, telling people about Jesus, then you're just, you're not living enough for the kingdom. And I remember when uh, my wife and I, when we had young kids, uh, we would talk, and sometimes Molly, who was a stay-at-home mom, would just be like, what am I doing with my life? I'm changing diapers. I'm feeding babies. Just trying to get to bedtime. And so oftentimes, if that's where you're at in this young kid age and you're like, oh, we're not doing enough to serve Jesus, I feel like Jesus would say to you, what is that to you, what they're doing? In the midst of what I've called you to, follow me. Tell your kids about Jesus. Pray over them in the watches of the night as they won't sleep. Whether you go to India to share the gospel and die as a martyr, or whether you lovingly raise your kids and all of them trust in Jesus because you poured over them and prayed for them, follow Christ. So I, I think John ended his, his book so well. Because he, John writes this gospel to show us that Jesus is the Christ, right? End of chapter 20. That by believing that Jesus is the Christ, you, you would believe that and then you would have life in his name. But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't just stop at, yep, I believe in Jesus, I have life in his name. That necessarily leads to a life of discipleship. Follow Christ. Meaning submit to him, obey him, grow in the likeness of him. And so my prayer as we finish this gospel is that not only would you and I believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the Christ, that we would have life in his name. My prayer all along is that we would believe that. But now, like he says, now follow me. So whatever God calls you to, a life of blessing or a life of suffering, that you would be faithful in whatever race God has you on. And that we would hold on to that. When, when, I, when I sin and when I mess up, I can go to Jesus and I'm going to live a life of repentance and confession. I can be restored because of who Jesus is. And then we would live lives, not comparing ourselves to what God has called so, into, so to or the other, but we would run the race that God has for us, that no matter what situation of life that you're in, Jesus would say the same thing to you. What is it to you what so-and-so is called to? You, in this moment, you follow me. 
And so would we be people like that, just running the race, eyes fixed on Jesus, not comparing, being quick to repent and turn to Jesus when we sin, but running the race that God's called each one of us to. So Father, I just thank you for how encouraging your word is. Um, We need to read examples of people who who sinned greatly and were restored by you um, because that's all of us. Um, forgive us, God, when we have this kind of high and mighty attitude that we're, we're so righteous and everyone, and we compare other things, and, and really what we're doing is we're not feeling this, this godly grief over our sin. We're making excuses. God, forgive us when we do that. I pray, like Peter, that we would just be grieved over our sin, but it would be a grief that produces repentance and life in us. That when we're, we're confronted with our sin, that it would push us to you, Jesus. That we wouldn't run and hide and we wouldn't live in shame and guilt and just these kind of cycles that we get ourselves into. But that when we sin, Jesus, we would run to you and grieve over our sin, but confess it and repent of it. And like First John says, that God, you are faithful and you forgive us and you cleanse us. Um, Secondly, God, I just pray that we as followers of you would not continue to just compare one another. That when we go through hardships and pain that we would go, well, why not so-and-so? Why do I have to do this? What about him? What about her? Or when, when other people, brothers and sisters, are experiencing blessing and, and grace from you that we wouldn't go, well, why not me? That's not fair. But God, I pray that we would run the race that you've called us to, whether that's being a stay-at-home mom and lovingly caring for children and praying over them. I think in the midst of that, Jesus would say, you follow me. Whether that's uh, working at, at, at a major company and sharing the gospel with people, same thing. Jesus would say, you follow me. Whether that's going ar- around the world to different parts of the world and, and suffering and sharing the gospel and losing our lives, I think that the call from Jesus would be the same. You follow me. So God, I pray that we would just have our eyes fixed on you and whatever the race is that you've called us, whether it's blessing or suffering, whether it's uh, triumph or pain, whether it's here in this part of the world or on the other side of the world, whatever it is, that our eyes would be fixed on you, Jesus, and we would say, my goal is to be faithful to follow Christ in whatever he's called me to. So God, thank you for this gospel. Thank you for John and his gospel. Thank you for the ability to study your word. I pray that as we've studied it, that we would come to know and that we've come to know, Jesus, that you are the Christ. You are exactly who you said you were and that we would believe in you and have life in your name and that now we would say, now my eyes are fixed on Jesus and I'm gonna follow him. So just thank you, God, and just continue to do your work in our hearts and we just pray this in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen.